VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. So before we get into things that we're drinking, we do have a very uh, exciting announcement. It has nothing to do with this podcast, <laughs> uh, but it does have something to do with another podcast that we have in the Vine. I hope, I hope listeners of the VinePair Podcast spread it around a little bit and listen to other podcasts yeah. in the VinePair Podcast yeah, Network. Yeah. And I would hope that the hosts of those podcasts encourage people to listen to ours. <laughs> I mean, ours is... Uh, for those of you listening, it's you, you the flagship, are, and we're the best. But uh, there are other good ones. There are other good ones on the network, and uh, one of those, Cocktail College, hosted by Tim McCurdy, is going to be doing its first live show uh, this coming Sunday, the eighteenth of February, at uh, the Sunken Harbor Club, which is an amazing bar in. Brooklyn that's associated with the restaurant Gage and Tolner, and they will be doing a live recording and talking about a really famous tiki drink, of mm-hmm. which I do not remember the name. Do you remember the, the name? The Fog Cutter. The Fog Cutter. Never even had a Fog Cutter. Me neither. I don't like cutting through fog. It's a gin-based tropical drink. Weird. Or it has multiple. Anyway. Interesting. And but, you should buy tickets uh, and to, go it, see it. Yes, if you are in New York, you can buy tickets. Uh, you can buy them by going to Gage and Tolner's Resi page, and the tickets will be there on Resi. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be a really great thing, and I think live recording is great. And you know what? Hey. If anyone ever wants to invite us to do a live recording, you want to host us, let us know. I mean, I think that we'd be really good live. We'll dump a bucket of ice water on Zach if you want us to. Like, <laughs> so you know, mean. I don't know. I think you'll it host, could be good. You'll do it in January and you'll make me do shots on stage. I think it could be good. We'll haze him. Like, whatever you guys want. Like, look, Zach might not whatever even exist. You- Zach might not even live in Seattle. Like, you guys, we should just, whatever you want. Like, invite us somewhere. We'll do a live recording. I think it'd be great. Yeah. I want I'm to, down. You know what? Where, wherever. We'll do it anywhere, even at a McDonald's. Let us know. <laughs> we'll do uh, it live. We'll do it live. Uh, but check out the Cocktail College live recording. And uh, with that, Zach, what have you been drinking this week? A couple of things. Um, so a few highlights for me of uh, over the last couple of days. One, it was um, just a really lovely uh, bottle of Grenache uh, from here in Washington from a friend of mine, uh, Morgan Lee, his winery, Two Vintners, from the Boucher Vineyard here in the state, one of the state's more well-known uh, vineyards, especially for Rhone varieties. Just kind of a lovely, like, aromatic, uh, kind of, you know, fruity, but not overly fruity wine. It was fun. Caitlin and I had it with some, I made like a stir fry, basically, with, um, I had some fermented black bean sauce in it and all that. And and the interesting mm-hmm. thing that we both kind of noticed is having the wine with that really kind of accentuated the fruitiness of the wine. And then when we were finishing the bottle later after we were done eating, like all of the kind of like savory earthy notes were more present. So it's kind of a fun little example of how stuff changes with, with, you know, wine can change with what you're pairing it with Mm. for sure. And then the other thing for me was I did something uh, the other day, which was, I was kind of wanted to get out of the house to do some work and, you know, poet was like thinking about, Oh, where can I go? And I was thinking about Dave's recent piece about breweries as third places. And I was like, I'm going to go to a brewery and do some work. Uh, so I went to urban family brewing um, in Ballard here in the, in Seattle and sat down, had a few, you know, tasted a few different beers while I did some work and it was, they're quite good. I like, I like their beers, but I was actually kind of surprised. It's funny. I, I had a beer style that I've only had once or twice before that I remain sort of baffled by, which is the, uh, the golden stout. And uh, mm. it's, it's a really weird, concept to me it's like what if we tried to make a beer that tastes and feels like a stout but is light in color um but i just in the end i don't really i don't understand why so instead of like making the 
stout with like the kind of malt you would typically use that is a really like, you know, dark toasted kind of going to give you a lot of the sort of chocolatey coffee notes that stouts are kind of famous for. It's like, well, we'll use a much lighter malt. We'll add like something for texture because the malt's going to give less body because it's lighter roast. And then we're also going to like infuse it with coffee or chocolate or whatever to kind of bring those notes in. And it kind of feels like doing a lot of extra work to get to the same place, except now it's like golden color, which I don't care about. Uh, oh, yeah, it tasted fine, but I just kind of was like, huh, seems like, uh, you know, doing more just for the sake of doing more. I don't know. I've never had one. I'd like to. Yeah. Because I don't think the people thing that holds people back from drinking stouts is generally the color. You, I think it's more like the flavor profile and or the people think it's the very heavy. Heft, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's be a heft to it, but like, Real heft. but this one wasn't light. I mean, it, they, they were still trying to make it feel like a stout. I don't know. It was weird. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Joanna. How about you, Joanna? Um, I made some pin hook rye Manhattan's over the weekend. Ooh. I mean, it's nothing like you know crazy, but. What There's was your? Spin. I like pinhook. What was your spec? Two to one. Okay. What was very? What, what was your cherry? Uh, what was my cherry? I think it's a shit like a trav. Um, what is that brand that does the Traverse City cherries? Mm, I know it, but I don't remember it. Okay, that. Cool. Well, what was your vermouth? That's the most important question. Oh, I think I had some Carpano Antica in the fridge. That's a good one, yeah. Yeah. It's whatever I can get my hands on sometimes, you know. <laughs> um, is Mac in there foraging for vermouth? Like, uh, what's going on? <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't, I don't, sp- I should probably spend more time and like be more thoughtful about the vermouth. But I, I feel like I just have some it's like whatever go-tos, it is. go-tos yeah. and if it's at the liquor store and I grab it and that's for it. For me, it's always Dolan. It's like if I Dolan. see it, I'm like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, I should be more thoughtful. Yeah, and then also uh, was very fortunate and got to try Krug's newest edition, which isn't coming out until next month. Yeah, and the 2011 oh. vintage. Yes. Yeah, edition one. Se- Are we allowed to say? Yeah. One hundred sixty-seven. One hundred sixty-seven. Yeah. Edition. Well, presumably it's whatever number is greater than the last one. So yeah. no, I think people could probably figure it out. No, no, oh, no, no, because because we also had that one hundred seventy-first edition. No, that's the new edition. We, the 171's new, and then we had 2011, and then we also had 2004 with 167, because that's when 2004, when the 2004 vintage came out, was also when 167 came out. Okay. Well, that was amazing. Yes, it was. Okay, what about you, Adam? Uh, so I, in addition to the that great Riesling that I talked about on the, last, on the Friday podcast, uh, over the weekend, Naomi and I went to see a play, and before we went to play, we went out to get a drink and then meet friends for dinner. We first had an amazing glass of wine at the new restaurant in Fort Greene, Margot. Okay. Sat at the bar. Really beautiful experience. Really beautiful restaurant. Um, and I had a glass of Martha Stuman's wine, which was really, like, very delicious, actually. What are you saying right now? I don't even know. Wait to, wait <laughs> Margo, to, Martha Stuman. <laughs> and wait until you hear the next wine okay, I had. Go. And then we went to Cafe Paulette, which I love. And I'm going to butcher the name of the wine, but it's from California. Jolelad. How do you say it? Oh, Jolelad. Jolelad. yeah. I love those wines too, actually, mm-hmm. even though they are both kind of natural wine producers. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Don't come for me. <laughs> I like both their wines. And uh, I, we had, I had a white wine that was also delicious um, and just paired perfectly with the actual burger that I had. Mm. Uh, and then we went to see a play that was super fucking depressing. Mm-hmm. 
So, <laughs> Perfect. Know. Sounds like a nice yeah. evening. Three hours. Of At least, depress- hopefully, it was intentionally depressing. Oh, it wasn't just like, but like okay. three hours okay, of okay. real intense and depressing play at BAM. <laughs> uh, but the wines were good before. Nice. And so then we got home, and Naomi was like, "Do you feel emotionally drained?" I was like, "Yeah." She's like, "Can we get a scotch?" And I was like, "Yeah, we'll have a scotch." <laughs> What'd you have? Nice. Uh, just like a a dram of the Glendronic that I happened to have, like twelve year or something. And the like after the babysitter left, she was like, <laughs> "We." She's like, "I need to have like a glass of something because the play was really Rough. a lot, yeah. and I need to be able to fall asleep." And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> oh, it was Holocaust themed, so yeah, you know, yeah. uh, it was a lot. Anyways, <laughs> transitioning that into uh, today's topic. Uh, so one of the things that we've talked about a bunch on this podcast, as well as at the office, in editorial meetings, et cetera, is these wine, grapes, spirits, et cetera, that fall out of favor and whether or not it is our job as a drinks community to rescue them or save them right so there's the you know the, the again the group thing building on friday's episode mm-hmm. is you know we need to save sherry right no one likes sherry anymore but we can't let sherry fail it's too important we need to push sherry or you know this certain type of whiskey has fallen mm-hmm. out of favor we need to make sure people still know how great it is or this grape no one wants to drink anymore but it's such an important relevant grape that we can't rip it up. We need to save it. We need to make wines from it. We need to convince people that it's great. We d- we don't need the producer to rip it up and plant Chardonnay, which people want to drink, or Pinot Grigio or whatever, right? And the question is, do we? Is that, <laughs> is that actually our jobs? Or or should should things that fail, fail? And, you know, this is a really interesting debate because I think it gets into the heart of capitalism. Mm. Yeah. And in that regard, like how much do do we owe it to these things to save them? And then if we do have to save them, or if we should save them, like how long should they have been around that they weren't saving? Mm-hmm. So for example, right, like Sherry, very, very old. Very old. Super old. Super old. <laughs> so there there's arguments like it's been around forever, like we really need to save it. Twisted Tea's not been around for that long. And if it fell out of favor, like, do we save Twisted Tea? Right. Do we save Zima? Mm-hmm. Do we, you know, think about some of these breweries that have been around only since the 60s or 70s? Or is that a long time now? Right. And do we save them or do we let them go under? Like, where do we draw the line? For Loco? Is mm-hmm. that the line? Like, mm-hmm. it's a really interesting question. And I'm somewhat of the opinion that, like, we don't need to do these things. Like, if... Something falls out of favor, it falls out of favor. And there will always be a market for those things that may just not be as big. And sometimes that's a good thing. And right now, Sherry has been saved by the scotch industry. So you don't have to worry about anything, Sherry freaks. But <laughs> if it wasn't saved by the scotch industry, then maybe that just means it's a smaller Sherry market. Like, that might be an okay thing. Right. So I don't know. I, I'm I'm conflicted, but I... I sort of think that, like, in anything that combines art and passion with business like beverages do, we tend to put our own personal feelings in with what actually is happening in the economic reality. And it makes it even tougher to, you know, consider. And this is a difficult question, but I think at the end of the day, for me, it's like, 
it's going to fail, we should maybe let it fail. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I think the examples that you gave are uh, are elucidating for this conversation, right? Like, I think that depending on the the brand or the category, right? Like, people will be more or less willing to want to save them. Sherry being a good good example. It's old. It's a tr- it's a trade. It's an industry. It's an it's agricultural, like compared to twisted tea. Uh, yeah, maybe people or cacti. Uh, you know, maybe people will be would I drew be the line of cacti. right. Like it's more meaningful to save sherry than it is to save something like twisted tea or cacti. I think to a lot of people because uh, I think people see something like sherry or like wine as like the agricultural product. There's a lot of like work and labor that goes into that, and like people behind that trade. And behind those products versus something that's like more commodified, like twisted tea. But like, couldn't you just replace what's being made in sherry with some other kind of wine that the population wants to drink more of? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think. Well, that is happening. Right. That doesn't mean that. I think that that's 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 where this argument gets fuzzy for me is yes i think you are right i think it's more just like people get sentimental about those things and that's why they think we need to save them i think sherry can do whatever it is gonna do and people can go drink sherry in spain right like you really care about sherry go to where it's made and yeah but i also think that the the those are these are kind of two connected but but not exactly identical questions because there's a there's the element of something like sherry port madeira a lot of fortified wines in general where they're on this long decline from the peak of their popularity or one of several peaks of their popularity because stylistically they don't seem to jive with what the average wine drinker wants out of wine these days there's a perception inaccurate and certainly in the case of sherry that all of them are sweet but even when that's not the case they are you know, relatively high in alcohol, they have sort of certain styles, and they are heavily process oriented. And even though they're in some cases made in small batches, artisanly, etc., some of them are also made in large quantities by large companies that make a lot of sherry. And I think that their historic place and importance is something that is worth noting. But like, we, you know, like we've talked about this on the podcast, I think way back when, like Americans don't feel compelled to drink Applejack just because it was the most popular thing to drink in America 300 years ago. <laughs> like, that's not really a relevant argument to me. And I think anyone who's out there claiming that, like, we need to do everything we can to protect Applejack production is just like they're sort of doing a thing for it's performative to me. It's not it, it's it's or it's a nostalgia at best. But also a weird kind of borrowed nostalgia because no one is actually nostalgic for that. Right. In any case, <laughs> um, I think what's interesting is like we have we have shown in in this sort of country and in this sort of culture that we generally give this whole argument very little credence. Look at look at bourbon. I mean, the bourbon industry almost collapsed yep. mm-hmm. in living memory for some people listening to this podcast for sure, and it almost collapsed because people stopped wanting to drink bourbon. And bourbon is a spirit with a you know uniquely american history that has been and is now again extremely popular and powerful but that didn't stop it from nearly like i said collapsing because people stopped wanting to drink it and to me the issue is something like we're taking a stance of like with things that are 
things like Sherry Port, etc., that like we have to advocate for them because they're historic. And if we don't advocate advocate for them, they will either stop being made or be made in much smaller quantities is kind of a like, man, that sucks. But like, yeah, people don't want to buy it. We have been people have been trying to push fortified wines on the American drinking public and the global drinking public for a long time now. Yeah. I mean, for centuries, really, but but in their current sort of decline for a couple of decades at least. And it just hasn't taken, and I think it's because it's just not what people want to drink. I have a little bit more sympathy for products that are really small or like grape varieties that are poor, like not very well known, sometimes spirits, styles, or categories that are less known. Because I think there is an argument that can be made that like, hey, in some of these cases, this could be popular or at least successful if enough people get to try it. Well, so but when it's these big behemoths that are just, you know, they're past their prime, I don't, I don't just don't have that. Sim- I don't have that nostalgia for them. I well, guess. so that's where I, let's take this question, let's take this conversation a, a step further. So fine, we're we're past the products and the categories. Okay. Let's talk about. In this regard, I think the only thing we can talk about is grapes. Okay. So. The argument that people have that winemaker that growers should not rip up certain varietals for more popular ones. So, for example, in Napa, stop ripping out all of the basically basically now even Chardonnay to just plant Cabernet. Stop it. it. You can't just plant Cabernet, even though that's all that the market seems to want from Napa is Cabernet. Mm-hmm. Or in parts of Italy, stop ripping up the obscure varietals that. The majority of the international community has no clue what they are for Sangiovese and Nebbiolo and other and, and even French varietals in parts of Tuscany, et cetera. Stop doing that because these varietals are part of our history and our heritage and blah, 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 and you should not rip them up. Is that something that we should fight against? Or should we say in the same regard, like, look, if the market doesn't want these wines, the market doesn't want these wines. At the end of the day, people own land, this land to live off of, and if right. – they can get more money for grapes that are in higher demand, then why should they be the ones to take the hit because their land happens to have the obscure grape varietal or the Sauvignon Blanc that pays them a fourth of what the Cabernet would pay them if they planted that? Yep. Yeah. My, I think that's a very valid point. I mean, I think it seems... As a non-grower myself, it seems a little foolish to do that, given the, you know, the climate that we're facing. Yeah. It seems smart to have more diversification. But, but yeah, I agree with you. If it is their, you know, it's their livelihood and this is what people are demanding and and it's their prerogative to make the wines that are going to they're going to be able to sell. And there's no guarantee. I want to be clear on this, too, that people who choose to make that decision, who rip out, you know, indigenous or just less planted varieties to plant more popular things. Lots of people have had huge problems with that, right? Not, I mean, philosophical problems. I mean, it's caused them financial problems because then there's an oversupply and you never know when, when demand for a variety is going to crater. I mean, I think about, you know, a lot of people planted Merlot in the nineties in lots of parts of the world. And then a movie came out and suddenly no one wanted Merlot anymore. (laughs) And, you know, when you chase fads and trends, you run risks and sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't. I don't think, I think there's a little bit of like, you know, again, I think we co-opt language that is useful for this terminology, but I've heard too many grape varieties be referred to as like endangered species for my own personal taste. Like <laughs> grapes are a, you know, this is a domesticated product, a, a, you know, species. We are not running at the risk of vitis vinifera going extinct. Yeah. And like, 
yeah, it's cool that these like various parts of Europe have these like weird varieties, these weird mutations that maybe only grew in a small place. And like, hey, every once in a while, are those things good? Sure. And like, I don't have any problem as long as someone wants to be, you know, the caretaker of that variety or advocate for it and make their wines and say they think they're better than what the people around them are making from more widely planted varieties fucking have at it man that's cool i think that's a fun thing about wine but i also think that we should not be buying that just because it's like because we think we're you know doing some sort of noble thing like i don't think there's anything on the consumer side that's like particularly noble about that unless maybe you go there and you like the person or you feel the sense of connection but like the reason there are like a 500 different varieties in Italy has a lot more to do with like the fractured nature of Italy's geography and history than it does that it's some sort of like ecological preserve. Like that's just not, it's not the Galapagos islands. I just don't know how to kind of square those things. And I think there's a way in which talking about something that is a domesticated, you know, cultivated product in this language that we use for real biodiversity crises is a little, I find a little distasteful. Yeah. Mm. I want to bring one last piece of this because we talked, you know, Joanna mentioned this about climate. I also think this conversation is relevant and will become more relevant when it comes to whole regions, right? Like Burgundy is facing this crisis right now. Bordeaux has been facing this crisis. A lot of Europe is facing this crisis and plenty of parts of the rest of the uh, wine growing world are facing this crisis of perhaps having to replant to different varieties or different or, or doing all kinds of different things viticulturally to produce wine. and. I think that when you cling to too desperately and tightly to the past, and this is maybe wine's overarching problem in a way, one of them at least, you you start making these kind of these kind of arguments about why people should buy a thing which which go really far afield from like the fact that it tastes good and it you know makes them happy to drink and stuff like that. And I think with with places that are really, really closely identified with a specific variety or a few varieties, and those tend to be more commonly places in Europe, but not exclusively, producers should feel, I think, growers should feel um, emboldened to plant what they need to plant to be able to produce wine. I think it is more important to me, at least, and I don't know if I speak for the two of you or any of our listeners, you can all tell me I'm wrong, that these regions remain grape growing and wine producing regions than that they remain dogmatic to a style of wine that may just be impossible to produce in the modern climate. In the same way that I would like for, you know, Jerez or Porto or whatever to remain wine producing regions, even if they're no longer making the style of wine that historically has been associated with them. And certainly not if people don't want to drink that. Like, I just, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think like the problem with that is that we are so tied in wine, especially to these fucking ancient classifications where in the 17 fucking hundreds and the 1800s, people determined that this vineyard or this plot was the be- I'm sorry. They didn't have science back then. Like they literally <laughs> didn't know why they were. I mean, dying. they did, but they, they did. didn't use it. <laughs> like, they, like, and look, and they're 300 years from now, they're going to look back at us and be like, these fuckers didn't have science. Like, <laughs> And they wore yeah, these weird headsets on their head. They looked ridiculous. If any of you buy that Apple product, <laughs> yeah. you're gone. <laughs> but, like, we're so tied to these very old classifications. That's And, look, that's wine education, right? And we want to talk about that in a future episode about do we even really need wine education? Oh. Um, in its formal 
model that it exists in. And that means that because we're tied to these classifications, we believe that the style also has to stay from what we read about when these things were classified. And there's, you know, that there's no way that anyone could ever challenge that Romani Conti is the greatest Pinot Noir in the world forever. Are you fucking kidding me? I guarantee you there are better Pinot Noirs. I guarantee you that there is someone out there that is doing crazy ass shit that has made a better Pinot Noir than Romani Conti. I promise you. It, it can't be that just be this place um, was not touched by God better than any other place in the world. <laughs> and just no, nothing can touch it. It's not fucking possible in the same way that like we see with tech and art. P- people come from nowhere and, and ultimately create more beautiful, more incredible, more whatever. And this is exactly what, again, the judgment of Paris proved at the time, which is like, these growers in Napa had realized that actually, sorry, but maybe the climate at the time was better for growing these varietals than Bordeaux and produced yeah. a wine that was better than Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. And now, who knows, because of manipulation with oak and all that shit. But, like, I would rather that we say, cool, maybe Burgundy now is a great place for other kinds of wines. And then there are other great plots that are discovered for these types of varietals and Pinot Noir's moved to the Finger Lakes or whatever as a great place for wine and Fort Ross Sea View that I talked about before and all this shit right like that it transitions where the varietal does best now mm-hmm. instead of that the only place we can ever have the best Pinot Noir in the world is from these few plots because in the 1700s we deem that shit yeah I mean I think the climate is going to dictate a lot of that possibly to. right yeah it has to and like in nothing else do we do this only in wine, maybe in Jersey tomatoes. I don't know. I keep thinking of tequila and agave in this conversation yeah. too. Like that's that's a real agricultural product. The the rate at which growers can grow mature agave to produce the amount of tequila in yeah. demand right now is, I think, it's pretty imbalanced. Right at yeah. this at this moment, and what what's going to happen then? I mean, what's going to happen is that the government of Mexico is going to have to decide that they are willing to expand where, where it can the be grown. Yep, where blue ever is allowed to be grown. That this was going to have to happen, and then we, yeah. you know, what we might determine that there's other regions of Mexico that actually make better tequila mm-hmm. because Agave spirits. Yeah, mm-hmm. but maybe it's going to be allowed to say te- exactly or California. <laughs> Joanna, Joanna, <laughs> banging that drum. Boom. <laughs> Th- that is that is what's going to happen, and I I don't. I just I think in there's a lot of pearl clutching about this shit. And the problem is that like everybody wants to be critical of people who are doing what they need to do in order to survive, but not critical about themselves. Right? Like everyone wants to actually be paid what they need to be paid to survive and make the money they need to make, but then they want to judge others. You're telling me that like we should tell a beverage professional that they should be paid less because it's for the good of keeping the restaurant open because it's a historic restaurant. It's okay. There's only two or three tables, but you need to come into work and we're going to pay you less because this restaurant's been around forever. And like, you shouldn't go find a new job at a better restaurant because this restaurant is, has been around for a hundred years. No, you would either close a restaurant or go work somewhere else in the same way that like, I don't think it's fair to tell a grower, you should keep planting these things because it's important for the history of, this region and the grape, if they can make more money doing something else, if it's their livelihood. I just don't think that we can say that to people. 
Unless you're going to pay them for it, right? Or unless the government's going to have massive subsidies like we do in the United States with our agricultural subsidies. Come on. Corn should not be worth as much as it's worth. But if, if you're not going to do that, you're not going to have some kind of nonprofit association that supports and protects these native varietals and says we will ensure that there is always going to be a set amount of this crop because we believe in it for the history of our region and our culture, et cetera, then let them do what they need to do. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. all. Anyways, end rant. Uh, <laughs> Joanna, do you want to see us off again today? You <laughs> no, did it on Friday. Okay, no, cool. I don't. Let us know what you think. Hit us up at podcast.vinepair.com. Uh, you know, always love getting the feedback. It's great to read the emails when they come in. It's also, you know what my favorite thing is? It's fun to get the email that's a reaction to the episode at like 8.30 in the morning. I'm like, wow, this right motherfucker just listened it. to that thing and fucking fired off, and I'm here for it. Yeah. I love I love so our fir- our first thing in the morning listeners. Yeah, because you know what it proves to me that you start the day with us, and that is no bigger compliment. Yeah. No yeah. bigger compliment. Truly. Truly. Yeah. Unless you listen to us to go to sleep. Oh, no, wait, just kidding. There's no way you listen to me to go to sleep. No. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying. I don't think that's possible. Uh, maybe. God, am I that boring? Uh if you guys want, we don't can, email in to tell Adam that. Do you guys want us to? If you want us to create a sleep podcast, we can. <laughs> Zach will just read the Oxford Wide Companion. Oh, man. Anyways, and with that, uh, everyone has a great Monday. Hit us up, and we will talk to you here again on Friday. Wow, you said all the things, Adam. We'll talk to you then. No, you say have a no. great week. You said that too. No, I did not. I said have a great Monday. See this, guys. People. Joanna, Joanna, you could say have a great Tuesday through Thursday. We're going to have to get this <laughs> tightened up. We apologize for this. We, we We're really doing apologize. It for years. We, we apologize, everyone out there in listener land. It's going to get tightened up by next Friday, I promise. Go, uh, go see the Cocktail College live episode. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.